Everybody say radical. radical. No, say it like you mean it. Radical. 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 Awesome. Radical Christianity. And we're looking at what would it look like as we as a church lived out our core values. What are we really about? Lutheran Church of Hope has five core values, five fundamental truths that make hope hope, that make us who we are at all of our campuses. And we, we, they're the reason that we exist. And I just want to say, we, we love it that you're here. We love it that you're, you're on board with this church because, you know, the worship's great and the, the preaching is okay, I guess. And, the, you know, you come for the donut holes and the community and the fellowship and you like children's ministry and all these things are good. But our number one desire more than anything else, whether this is your a thousandth time here or it's your very first time here this morning, our question for you and our deepest desire is, are you on board with the mission? Are you on board with the mission? Because all those other things might change. As I, as I look through scripture, when God's people start following him and what Jesus says when he means to follow me, it's are you on board, not with the style of church, are you on board with the substance of church? meaning being a part of a family, being committed to a body of Christ. And maybe, maybe today's the day to put your roots down. Maybe the day's the, to, the day to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a part of this family. I'm going to be connected. I'm going to be on board with the mission. That's fundamentally what it means to be the church. So all those other things might change, but what are the truths that hold us together? These, the, our mission, our, our vision as a church, and these core values have not changed since hope started, close to 20 years ago, there was a small group of people that got together and wrote these, and who would have thought that in all the changes, think about the last 20 years of the world, right? We as a church have never changed. We've changed a lot in terms of style, right? 20 years ago, I might have been wearing a robe up here with a collar or something like that, and that's fine, but some of you might say, oh, nice Halloween costume, Pastor, that's, that's nice, you know? styles always change, right? It's not good and bad. It's just they're different. Are you on board with the mission? Last week, we started walking through these core values, and the first one, let me quiz you here, is... Ah! I'll give you, I'll give you the first part. You give me the second part. Jesus' is life and... The rest is details. Jesus' life, the rest is just details. Let's try it together. Jesus' life, the rest is just details. One more time. Jesus' life... The rest is just details. And again, our goal is not for you to memorize these or put them up on a board because what good are core values if they're not lived? Right? Oh, that's a cute little plaque or poster you have on your wall. What does that mean? And so our hope is that you not just memorize them, but you start to embody them and live them out as a church. Everything we do is for the purpose of knowing Jesus Christ and making him known. That's why we do what we do. And this week, we're taking a look at our second value this week, which I was thinking about this week, you look at a core value like this, and it cannot just be words. It can't just be something that we flippantly throw out there and say, and oh, we'll kind of get that someday. There's a lot of sermons that I'll give up here that are vision sermons, where we're saying, this is who we're called to be as a church, and I'll say, this, this, these, are, these are values, these are characteristics that we want to have as a church body. And then there comes a point, as it is with this value here today, where we stop casting vision and we just do it. Amen? We stop talking about it and we just embody that. It, it becomes this value that is so important that we can't just talk about it. 
And that is true of our second value of a church today, and it's this, that lost people matter to God, and so they matter to us. Let's say it together. Lost people matter to God, and so they matter to us. One more time. Lost people matter to God, and so they matter to us. We'll get it. We'll get it. For those who don't yet know Jesus, for those who may not have a church home or may not be in a relationship with God, they deserve our utmost respect and dignity and even friendship. There's this idea that sometimes as the church, it's us against the world. And there's all this evil out there and there's all this darkness out there and there's all these people who, who they don't go to church. There was once a man who had such a passion to see people that were far from God know that they are loved. Well, that this man not only reached out to them, but he became one of their very best friends. In fact, this man, he would rearrange his schedule. He would rearrange the priorities of his life in order to make them a priority. Even those people that, that society had said, oh, nobody else wants to be with them. Even those people that, that maybe feel like they've messed up one too many times. Those people who maybe feel disconnected from God, a little dry in their faith. Those people that are maybe a little rough around the edges. You know, those people that you and I point our fingers at sometimes and say, they're definitely not church people. They're definitely not church appropriate. Well, this man had a way of being with them where he was able to challenge their way of life, not conform to them, but to challenge them in their current lifestyle. And yet all these people felt completely comfortable and accepted at the same time. And when they were all together, you know, these kind of people... When they were together with this man, when they were together, they had more joy than any other party in town. Does this sound like somebody you'd like to get to know? Let's do it. Turn to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to find out. Luke chapter 5, if you're not there already, this is what Kathy read for us this morning. There's a dinner party going on, and it's for those kind of people. You know, those people that aren't exactly church people. And in any of those descriptions I've labeled, we're not trying to put labels on people this morning. I just say those things because, well, maybe you feel like one of those people. Maybe everybody here this morning is not a churchy person. Maybe you don't even feel like you deserve to be here. Maybe you feel dry or disconnected or you've been away from the church for a long time. Maybe that's you. Let's check out this story. There's a dinner party going on, and it's not exactly for first-class citizens. For those people. And we pick it up in verse 29 of Luke chapter 5. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious people who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and Sinners. Now, go back to the beginning of that passage really quick. I want you to notice something. Did you catch this? Who is this party being thrown in honor of? 
Jesus. <laughs> this is awesome. A bunch of those people are throwing a party in honor of Jesus. He's, the, he's clearly the guest of honor. And the last time I looked, normally you would throw a party for those people that you would say are your closest friends. Clearly, Jesus is the guest of honor. In other words, something about his life, this man, must have been so appealing to those who are far from God that they invited him. Jesus didn't come knock on their door and say, um, I have this Bible track I'd like to walk you through. It's Romans Road. Uh, you look like a bunch of sinners and people that needed saving, so let me teach you. Let me convict you of your sin. They invited him. His life was so appealing to them that they loved hanging out with him. And everything is going along great, that is, until the religious people show up. Isn't that always the case? The religious people show up and they ask, Jesus, what are you doing? You're the son of God. You're the Messiah. You have church meetings to attend. You, don't you have a Bible study to lead, Jesus? Or don't you need to be in your office at the church working on your next evangelism strategy? And Jesus says, you're looking at it. You're looking at it. Real, genuine, agenda-free friendship. That's my outreach strategy. Or as Jesus says in verse 31 that you have before you there, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says, that's my mission. Lost people mattered to God the Father, so they mattered to Jesus, so they must matter to us. In fact, one of the main things that throughout even the, the, the Gospels for sure, particularly the Gospel of Luke that we're in today, is Jesus loved to tell stories, particular stories about things that were lost being found. Flip on over a couple chapters to Luke 15, just a couple chapters later. Jesus loved a good story, and he loved stories about things that were lost becoming found. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories in a row. And whenever that happens in Scripture, we know that the writers of Scripture, that, that Luke who wrote this, is trying to make a pretty clear point. <laughs> Jesus loves it when the lost are found. Pay attention to this, he says. So Luke chapter 15, three stories in a row. First, a lost sheep, right? Jesus leaves the 99 to find the one. Then a lost coin. This woman has 10 silver coins. She loses one of them and goes on a mad search all over her house and she finds it. And then the last story, the one that you probably know the best, is the lost son. Or as we know him, the prodigal, right? And it's so easy, and I'm sure that you've probably heard some of these stories before. It's so easy to look at these stories and say, oh, they found the little sheep. That's neat and cute. And they, you know, they found the little coin. You know, we all find pennies on the floor sometimes. Oh, a little boy ran away from his dad and came back. Cute. Or you could look at these stories and understand that Jesus is trying to tell us that the sheep and the coin and the son are the people that you know and love that are around you every single day that don't know him. 
and that he is passionately in love with them. Are you? Lost people matter to God, and so they matter to us. Jesus says, I am pursuing them with a fierce passion, and when the lost are found, it's a big deal to God. Is it a big deal to you? Or is it, oh, looks like there's some new people out there today. Wonder what their story is. It's a big deal. It's a big deal when lost things are found. It's a big deal when lost things are found in the Anenson house. Let me tell you this. Our son Caleb is 15 months old. And I am pretty sure that he wakes up every single morning in his crib scheming of the 10 areas of the house that he will destroy today. I think he's, literally, when I come in there, he is standing in his crib. And I think that before I come in there, you know, hiding from us, he's in there going, hmm. What am I going to destroy? Like, he's processing this. And I think one of his thoughts is, you know, today I think, well, this was yesterday's thought. Caleb's sitting there going, hmm, I think what I'll do today is I'll take all of the granola bars out of their boxes and put them in the toilet, because that makes complete sense. Absolutely. Those of you with toddlers know this. From the moment he gets up, he is waddling around looking for things to grab and take off shelves and gnaw on, as well as things to hide. Especially the things that he loves the most. And I don't get this, but if you had something that was very valuable to you, why would you hide it, right? But for some reason, he gets great joy out of this, and he hides them in the strangest of places. So one day, for the life of us, we cannot find the white car. Now, some of you might ask, it's a white car. Don't you have a blue car and a red car? No, this is the white car. And our lives are not complete. And we will throw a fit. And we cannot move on with our lives until we find the white car. So dad's at home with Caleb one day. It's bro time at home. And we're hanging out. It's, it's man time. And we're playing with the cars. And we can't find the white car. Oh, no. And we probably spent an hour looking everywhere, including both of the toilets, for the white car. Where could the white car be? And for an hour, my poor son, just distraught, is walking around, pointing at everything in the house, going, car, 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 car. He even pointed at me. No, I'm not a car. I'm your dad. Car, 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 car. And he's, and oh man, it's like he just knows what's going on. He walks in. We have this little tiny couch for him in the living room. And he walks in and he sits down on it, shrugs his shoulders and goes, <sighs> and I'm like, oh, I wish I could just find it. Like, hmm, where would the, I least expect it to be? How about the random shelf that's the, the drawer that comes out of the bottom of the oven? Just, just, just look. Pull it out. There it is. Car, car. And I bring it in, and he is sitting all slouched over, and I hold it behind my back. This is so much fun, because he doesn't any, have any idea what's coming. And I go, Caleb Lee. And his face just went, oh, and he goes, car, car, the greatest discovery of mankind, car, car, the joy. I'm pretty sure we put on the, the, the music together and we did a little dance together. We did a happy dance with the car, 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 car. You know what the common theme is in all three of these stories in Luke chapter 15? Joy. 
When the sheep is found rejoicing, when the coin is found rejoicing, when the son comes home, let's have a party and celebrate. There's this unspeakable joy and passion for those that were lost now being found. Is that your heart today? Where is your heart maybe out of alignment with God's heart? Is it, oh, great, if somebody comes to faith, good, but that's not really for me. Or is it, car, car, my sheep is back. The coin's back. My son has come home. What's Jesus getting at here? In Luke chapter 15, he's getting at that the natural response of those of us who would say that we have been found is to never stop searching for those who are lost because of the joy that exists on the other side. You see, if we're not careful, for those of us who would say that we're found, those of us that are back home here, a part of this community, the danger for us is the longer we go as a church is that we can start believing that God's number one goal for our lives is to be comfortable. I hate to break it to you, not at the top of God's priority list for you. Have you read the Bible? Ask any of the characters, was God's number one desire to make them comfortable? Absolutely not. Or for that matter, his number one desire for you is not to be content with who's already here. Don't get me wrong. We love it that that you're here. If we haven't made that abundantly clear by now, absolutely. Some of you may be familiar with a story from early on in Hope's history Hope uh, West Des Moines was the only campus at that point, and and Pastor Mike was going around knocking on doors, and the first Sunday, he grew the church from 12 to 4, so that was a good start, and that was his family. And so he's out knocking on doors, and he's getting to know people, he's getting to know other pastors, and he sat around with a large group of pastors, and they all told Pastor Mike, we don't need another church in West Des Moines. Plenty. And Pastor Mike kind of didn't say it out loud, but he thought to himself, that's, that's funny because there's thousands of people here. It's one of the fastest growing suburbs, and there's thousands of people that don't know Jesus. So that's funny. So we're just going to be obedient to Christ. And so hope started to grow, and it grew. And it grew to around 400, and, and, and there was a council meeting of all the, the leaders of the church at that point, which is about half the church, um, <laughs> And they're having this meeting together and they're thinking, whoa, things are getting out of hand here. They're growing and people are coming to faith and there's new people and we're running out of chairs sometimes and we may run out of donut holes or coffee. What are we going to do? And somebody stood up at one of the council meetings with a good heart, with good intentions and said, hey, everybody, uh, pastors, staff, I, I just feel like we probably just need to cap it at 400. I think, I think we've reached a good point. And before you laugh and snicker, just hear me out. They're all good intentions, and this person was, you know, I, I like smaller churches. Maybe some of you do. I, I like smaller churches, and, and some of you call this little hope, and that was the original little hope. And just be careful with your words. It's God's church, not ours. He determines it. And this person was saying, it's getting kind of big, and I don't know everybody here anymore, and, and I don't know who all the leaders are, and I have a hard time connecting with them. And, you know, when there's more people, there's more problems, and things will just be easier if we just stop inviting and we just cap it right here at 400. And it was a serious motion on the table at that time. 
Well, the, luckily, well not luckily, God's hand was on it and the motion was put on hold to the next meeting the following month. The problem was in that month, hope grew by another 100 people. And now all of a sudden we're at 500 and now the meeting is adjourned again back to the next meeting. People kept inviting. And yeah, I agree. And the same person made the motion again. And then this wise old gentleman, this wise old sage, stood up in the corner of the meeting. I don't even think he was on the council. He just stood up and said, um, you know, that sounds okay and everything. I'm, I just have one question. Who, which one of us is going to tell the new 100 to leave? Whoops. When it comes to church... When it comes to sizes of churches, when it comes to our role in the church, hear me say loud and clear, bigger is not better. Smaller is not better. Better is better. And better is being obedient to Jesus Christ no matter what anybody else says and never stop inviting. And we'll leave the results up to him. Amen? We are called to be obedient and to never stop inviting. And until there are no longer tens and thousands of people in these neighborhoods, in our area of the city, in our backyard here, until there are no longer tens and thousands of people that don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ or are connected to the church, our job is not done. We will not settle. We will not be content. We will not cap it, for pity's sakes. So how exactly do we do that? What does that look like for us as a congregation? I want to offer two specific challenges for us this morning if we're going to be radical. Everybody say radical. Radical. I'll say it like you mean it. Radical. Radical. There's two things I think we're called to be. To be people, number one, of radical grace, and number two, to be people of radical invitation. Radical grace and radical invitation. When we say radical, what we're saying is we're going to be the church, we're going to be the kind of people that when we live our lives, we follow Jesus, it's not going to make sense to the church, and it's not going to make sense to the world a lot, because grace doesn't make sense. It's illogical, but it's true. (laughs) How many things in life are illogical, but true? Not very many. Grace is. And to the world, it doesn't make sense, because to the world, you have to earn everything. And to the world, only certain people are invited but not here, but not here. So first, radical grace. Oftentimes, God will cross our path with people without a church home, and that may be you sitting here this morning. We are so glad that you are here. God brings people right here to our doorstep. Some of you have been those very people, and you've wandered up to our porch here, and maybe this is your first time here today, maybe you've been coming for a little while, and and you've wandered up, you've come inside, and you're wondering what this is all about. And of the many questions that I'm sure that you've had if you've ever been new to a church and hundreds of people will continue to have is they're going to look around and they're going to say, is this real? Or is this, just, is this all just kind of a show? I mean, is this, is this real? And, and does anybody here care enough to actually take the time to get to know me? And even more than that, I guess, once somebody gets to know me, are they going to be okay with what they find? 
I've felt that before. Have you ever felt that? We've all been new somewhere, somehow, right? We wonder, what are they going to think when they discover my past? What I'm struggling with right now? There's a reason, folks, that hospitality is lifted up in the, the first and second Timothy, hospitality is lifted up as a qualification of elders, meaning the most mature believers in the church, they know how to prepare their church home like they would their own home if they were expecting guests with a first-class welcome. Just like the father's elaborate party for his lost son who came home. Kill the fatted calf. We probably won't do that this morning. But, you know, put a robe on him. Put a crown on him. Just royal treatment for those who have come home. Thinking of a tangible way to demonstrate that, to give you a picture of what that could look like in a non-church setting, and look no further than Tim's place. I came across this story. Tim Harris, maybe you haven't heard of this, he is, as far as we know, the nation's only restaurant owner who happens to have Down syndrome. He runs the entire restaurant by himself. And although the food at Tim's Place, that's what he calls it, Tim's Place, is excellent, Tim's Place is known for one thing, for miles around. Hugs. They serve breakfast, lunch, and hugs. Oh, yeah. And you're going to hear him say that. And as you watch this short clip, let's ask ourselves... What would it look like for us as a church here every single Sunday to offer this kind of hospitality to those who walk in the doors? Let's take a look. I wake up about 5.30, get in the shower, do my morning routine, go around 7 o'clock to come to work. I am so excited to go to work, so I do a dance-off in the parking lot. It's a dance of magic. We serve breakfast, lunch, and hugs. The hugs are the best part. I am Tim Harris, and this is my place. Oh, yeah. Hey guys, welcome to my place. How are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Oh. Those are the best part, buddy. I love you. Have you been here before? No, I've never been here before. Well, I'm Tim, I'm the owner. Tim's place is the special place to be at because it's run and operated by me. You guys are doing a great job back here. I love you guys. You guys are all the best cooks ever. Since I was a kid, I wanted to own a restaurant and I asked my dad to help me out. I'm very glad I did. Thank you, Dad. I love you so much. I love you too, buddy. I'm very proud of you. When he was about 14 years old, he told us that someday he was going to own a restaurant. After we all uh, gulped and gasped, he began to take him seriously, and the result is history in the making. They supported me so I can live up my dreams. I'm amazingly proud of my brother. Just what he's accomplished in his lifetime. I mean, people can only dream, you know? I love you, Mom. I love you too, honey. As far as we know, we have not yet found another person with Down syndrome in this country that owns their own restaurant. We hope that other people will, though. My favorite part of all is the people coming through that front door. How are you doing today? Good, how are you? Sometimes customers get sad. 
I give them a hug and then they feel a lot better. Oh, thank you, Tim. The hugs are way more important than the food. The food is food, so. <laughs> How about a double hug? Yep, double hug. Love you guys. I am a mean, mean hugging machine. Oh, yeah. So let me get this straight to you. Yeah. You're a restaurateur. Yes. And a special Olympic athlete. Special Olympic athlete, and you yes. won a gold medal. I have one more medal to Michael Phelps. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, oh yeah. I did not let my disability crush the dreams. With people with disabilities, they can do anything they set their minds to. They're special. We are a gift to the world. Yeah, praise God for Tim's story, huh? Absolutely. Some may look at that story and say, Oh, that's nice. That's cute. Thanks for showing that, Pastor John. You know what I think? He totally gets it. He totally gets it. Some of you are like, yeah, you know, Pastor John, I'm not really a big hugger. Kind of, you know, it's my personal space. I'm more of a private person. Oh, but we miss the point. <laughs> we miss the point. Did you hear what Tim said his number one priority is? people walking through his door. And he makes it his personal mission to make sure that everybody that comes to Tim's place gets a hug. Because sometimes customers come in and they're sad. Sometimes people come into churches and they're sad. Sometimes we come in and we're weighted down with our own sin and our guilt and our shame. Sometimes we come in and we're so excited we just want to tell somebody about it. And wherever you are on that spectrum this morning, maybe we could be a little bit more like Tim's place. Maybe that's what Jesus is calling us to do here in Luke 15. When people walk into Tim's house, they feel love. When people walk into God's house, regardless of how long you've been away or what's been going on in your life, shouldn't they feel like an invaluable member of our community? And some of you will say, oh, that's why we have greeters. <laughs> mm. It's not the greeter's job. It's not the usher's job. It's not the coffee and donut people's job. It's not anybody's job. It's all of our joy. Amen? It's not a job. It's a joy. It's who we are as God's people. And if some of you want to do a little dance-off, happy dance in the parking lot before you come in, so you can just kind of get your groove on to greet people, do it. Whatever it takes. You should try that sometime. Before I became a pastor a long time ago, I would visit different churches, and I'd just go around, and nobody knew me, and so I would sit alone. And I would ask myself, hmm, I kind of wonder if this is the place for me. And when I got this job, I knew that this is where I would be, and I wouldn't have that experience of being a visitor very often. And I asked God, God, would you please help me never forget what it's like to be new? If lost people matter is a core value, then we won't just read the prodigal son story. We will be the prodigal's father every single day. It's a story that's told of a very prominent church, big, huge church in the city. 
A beautiful building. It had stained glass windows and a pristine sanctuary. It was just perfect. Church, this church was known far and wide for having some of the most prominent members of the city that attended there, some of the most prominent leaders. It was definitely a high-class congregation, kind of like ours, right? And boy, did they dress the part. You only came if you looked your very best. The services were just about as straight-laced as the dress code, and nothing too wild or crazy or out of the ordinary happened. Until one day, in the middle of the sermon, the doors to the back of the big, huge sanctuary, four times this length, all the way back there, in the middle of the sermon, the doors at the back of the sanctuary popped open, and inside those doors walked a middle-aged man who was clearly dressed in dirty jeans, a raggedy tie-dye t-shirt, and some muddy shoes. And he wore a baseball cap. And so, in his tie-dye shirt, against the sea of black suits, he stuck out like a sore thumb. This visitor, he was known around town as Bill, although nobody really had taken the time to get to know his name, started to make his way up the aisle. I mean, imagine if somebody just started walking up towards the front during my sermon, and you're all dressed in suits, and he's got a tie-dye shirt on, and he just starts slowly walking up, and he's just keeping his eyes focused on the pastor, and the pastor's up there in all his garb and his robes and everything, and at some point, everybody is watching Bill, and nobody's listening to the sermon, so the pastor just stops preaching. Well, the service was completely disrupted, and Bill could feel the eyes of everyone bearing down on the back of his head. But he just had this thought that maybe it was time to come home. Maybe it was time to get reconnected with church. And so Bill made his way to the front of the sanctuary, <laughs> got down on his knees, and sat down <laughs> right in the front of this big, huge sanctuary in front of thousands of people. He just sat down in his tie-dye shirt and his baseball cap. And then, from the middle of one of the rows, the church council president stood up in his suit <clears throat> and started walking towards Bill, very slowly bearing down on him from behind, and everybody's wondering, what is the church president going to do to Bill? And he gets up close to Bill, and he puts his hand on his shoulder, and he sits down next to him, and puts his arm around him. Points up at the pastor and says, keep going, Reverend. We need to hear it. And for the remainder of the service, there sat Bill and the church council president, arms around each other on the floor. So more of that More of that here on weekends, more of that just in our lives. Let's be a sit on the floor with our arms around each other kind of church. Amen? Because chances are all of you have felt like the church council president with an opportunity to point that finger of judgment, and all of you have probably felt like Bill at one time or another. And here's the best part. There are certainly probably a lot of bills here in our midst, in our bigger community. 
Maybe that's you today. But I wonder how many bills are out there. Maybe not dressed in rags and dirty jeans. Some of the bills that are out there are covered up in the disguise of success and wealth and busyness. And yet, it's not about the outside, it's about what's going on in the inside, and on the inside, they are crying out. And so, when you and I have experienced, when we've been Bill, and when we've experienced radical grace, we become transformed to radical inviters. We move from being the invited to being the inviters. We move from consuming to serving. We don't just wait for people to come to us as a church. We go to them. We leave the porch, and as it said, the prodigal's father ran to him. Not out of duty, but out of joy. Remember the stories? Out of joy. It's a far cry from a survey that I found about inviting new people in that was reported that for the average Lutheran, they invite somebody to worship once every 27 years. That's about three times per lifetime. Some of you are like, I'm going to become a Presbyterian. Um, problem is there's a lot more bills out there than that. The good news is that it's not about you. It's not about your ability to figure it all out when it comes to sharing your faith. It's not about how smart you are, how much Bible you know, how new you are to the faith. What matters is that God is so utterly passionate about the people that you know and love and see every day, and he's simply asking you to join him in that, to join him in that. So what does that mean? What does that look like. uh, Actually, don't skip ahead. Skip back to Luke chapter 10, and this is where we're going to land today. I want to give you some handlebars. I want to give you some tangible tools, some things that we can do as a church. Luke chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 2. In just a few verses, Jesus is, he's preparing to send out some followers to reach out to others, and Jesus gives us this roadmap that goes like this. If you simplify it, it's go, stay, be. Everybody say go, Stay, be. So we start in verse 2. Jesus says this, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So very first, verse 3, go. Now some of you will read that and think, Oh, I know what that means. I got to go to Africa. I got to go on a mission trip. Which is funny because the Greek verb here is actually in your going. It's not go somewhere else. It's as you go, meaning the people and the places and the things that you already do. Go where you already are every day and bring the kingdom. So that's the first part, go. The second part is verse 5. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If somebody who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. In other words, Jesus is giving us some really tangible ideas here. Jesus is asking, who are the people that you already interact with that are open to your life? who are open to your story and to sharing their story? Who do you have things in common with? Who in your life enjoys doing the same things that you do, but they just may not know Jesus? Who would actually, go hang out with them. Who would actually believe that evangelism could be fun and not awkward, right? Last, verse seven. Stay there, eating and drinking, Whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. The second key is stay. 
Stay. Do life with them. An invitation to church, hear me say this, an invitation to worship may need to start with an invitation into your life. What if sharing your faith was 90% consistency? Do we love people like brothers and sisters or do we have an agenda for them? Go, stay, and last but not least, be. Verse 9, it says, Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, in this situation, it was praying for healing, but the goal is simply be. Be good news to them. It may be sharing what God has done in your life. It might also be serving, for, serving them, praying for them, discovering what their biggest need is, and then blessing them. Go, stay, be. Everybody say it with me. Go, stay, and be. It's not a formula. It's a way of life. Lost people matter to God, so they matter to us. And we can talk about it, or we can simply go do it. And where I want to land today is some of you heard on the video this morning that Vacation Bible School wrapped up its first session at Hope West Des Moines this past week, and ours begins tomorrow. And I wanted to share this letter with you as we gear up for VBS, and some of you may be still contemplating, oh, should I go or not? This is from a, a little girl that went to VBS last week. Dear, dear Hope Church, like how she says that, I wanted to write you a note to say that when I first came to Bible school, I was really scared because my friend Maddie invited me and I had never been to a church before. And there were lots of new people. Some of them were weird. <laughs> but now that Bible school is over, I am so happy that I got to come. Because I had never known that God is always with me even when I feel alone. So my mom and my dad don't live together anymore. And so this has been a really hard summer for me. But one day, my friend Maddie gave me a hug. And she said, it's okay. Just remember the phrase of the day. God will never leave you. I am so glad that Maddie asked me to come. P.S. I didn't know that we were allowed to dance in church, but I liked it. <laughs> Love, Ashley. And that's why we do what we do. Kids get it, and I pray that we get it. Radical grace, radical invitation. VBS starts tomorrow. Worship is every single week. Your life is every single day. Let's make some invitations. Amen?